What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to talk soccer, but before we can talk soccer, we got to talk about interest rates with Ira Jersey, chief U.S. interest rate uh, strategist. Ira, I mean, I was under the impression that 25 basis points the next meeting, maybe 25 after that, and then let's pause, see how things are going. But now people are telling me I need to folk pencil in a third, a third 25 basis point rate increase. What's going on with all you Fed people? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, over the last month, you've seen some pretty poor um, or higher than expected inflation data, right? Both CPI and, and the PCE deflator. And then even just this morning, and the reason why uh, rates are selling off today has been higher than expected inflation in France and Spain. So with, with such, uh, you know, with, with inflation still being the, the worry and, and the fear of central bankers, um, you continue to see whenever we get these surprise, surprisingly high inflation prints, you're going to wind up pricing in more and more uh, interest rate hikes. So, yeah, so the market's now pricing in for um, a 5.5% um, uh, terminal rate for, for the Fed funds rate. And, and I think that... And no cuts. You know, and no and cuts this year. No no cuts this year. Well... I see him coming down to a terminal rate of like 530-something, which is yeah, still between so, so, 525 and 550. Yeah, so you're still talking about you're still talking about maybe a half. There's a fifty basis, a fifty percent chance of of a single cut by the end of the year. So not a full cut though, which is to match your point is what we were pricing. Um, and and because we were pricing that, three cuts at one point. Yeah, we were pricing we were, we were pricing pretty aggressive cuts, like people thinking that we were going to have a, a significant slowdown, and that's one of the reasons why the market shifted so much because we were kind of expecting the cumulative you know rate hikes that we've had and and some of the data that we've seen certainly suggests that the economy is slowing, but the economy is just not slowing fast enough to bring inflation lower and and the interesting piece out of the, the most recent data um, is services we expected to continue to grow. You know, wages are pretty strong. We've talked about that on the show before. But, but importantly, in, in a lot of the data, um, is that goods prices didn't continue to fall, as most of us expected uh, that, that to occur, and, and mitigating the increases in services. So since goods prices basically stabilized at uh, near, near current levels, um, you know, that's, that's really given some people some pauses to exactly what the future rate will be ultimately for uh, for the Fed and then therefore for the rest of the market as well and that's one reason why we're you know testing four percent on the ten-year for example um, and uh, you know it, it, I think you get one or two more you know better than expected data prints and we could wind up breaking four percent mm. again and maybe testing four and a quarter which is the next really important technical level it's actually four point two four percent if you really <laughs> want to get pedantic so Ira I've made a career out of ignoring people like you and Lisa Bromo to talk about yield curves and all that kind of stuff. But boys, I look at the two-year tenure, it's negative. It's inverted 85 basis points. That's a thing, right? Should I pay attention to that? 
Yeah, well, so, so the market is still thinking that we're going to have uh, high rates now and then lower rates later, and, and that's, I think that that's a reasonable assumption. Um, I, I think the question becomes, and, and this is where you know, people who try to use these indicators and use the market for determining you know, w- when the market thinks a recession is going to be, ends up, that's when these types of indicators end up failing. Because the reason why we're where we are today is not necessarily because we think there's going to be a recession, the market thinks it's going to be a recession this year, but that maybe there's going to be a recession in 2025 and the Fed cuts interest rates to zero again, right? That still gets you to a 10-year that's well below where the two-year yield is today. Um, the two-year yield's right at fair value, by the way, based on um, the Fed hiking to 5.5% and then staying there uh, for, the, for the rest of this year. So, so the two-year is probably right. The question is, is the 10-year right, or are we going to see inflation be much more persistent than we have? And that means that you can wind up with, with a, uh, what we call a bear steepener, where you can wind up with 10-year yields going up and two-year yields not doing very much at all. Hey, we focus so much on the U.S. because you know it's the greatest country in the world and the only place that's important. But nice. over in Europe, <laughs> you had French and Spanish inflation that was uh, stronger than expected, um, a record in uh, France for the euro area. And we're now expecting, or the markets are now pricing in, 4% for the ECB, which is, I mean... Yeah. A lot. That's aggressive, right? Um, we're looking at the highest level on buns in, what, 15 years? What's going on over there? And is that part of what's driving the trade here? Yeah, it definitely is, and, and today in particular. So, you know, you've seen... Um, you've seen actually the European bond market leading the U.S. bond market by uh, by about five minutes uh, during the course of the day today, um, and the you know there is a big worry because remember unlike the US the European Central Bank only has a single mandate and that's to keep inflation under control it's for stable prices they don't have the, the the same you know full employment mandate that um that the US and five other central banks have but be, so because they're so fixated on inflation when you get higher than expected inflation prints that just means that it's likely that the ECB is going to be somewhat more hawkish. They were very cautious early on in, in the, this hiking cycle, but now that they've got, gotten going, uh, Hugh Worthington, who's my, uh, my, my colleague in, in, uh, in London, you know, he expects them to hike 20, uh, 50 basis points at the next meeting and then probably go a little bit more after. So, so you're right. Like, Europe is worried about inflation. Um, obviously, some of it is not related to the economy, right? All the stuff going on with the Ukraine and with gas and energy prices is, is a separate issue from the, uh, um, you know, from the, the underlying economy. But, you know, central bankers only have a single tool to try right. and fight inflation, and that's doing what they're doing, and that's increasing interest rates. Sure, and they have to fight inflation, as you point out, without worrying about unemployment, A, because it's not in their mandate, and B, because unemployment just doesn't suck as much in Europe as it does here. Socialism, right? All that good stuff. All right, Ira, um, Manchester United, presumably they're selling a piece of the company. So, of course, my advisors and I, we are kicking the tires. I'll talk to you about that next time. Get your input. Ira Jersey, he's the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, giving us his thoughts on uh, the Fed. Uh, We've got a couple maybe three rate increases uh, coming up uh, in 2023. After that, who knows? We'll keep in touch with Ira Jersey. He's got the skinny. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Pat Gallagher, CEO of Gallagher Insurance. So I'm guessing that's like his company. This is a New York Stock Exchange listed company. AJG is the ticker. I pump it up on my Bloomberg terminal. Wow. It's got a market cap of $40 billion. Pat, how come I don't know anything about your company and you guys are so big? big. Tell me about your company and, and where you guys fit in the insurance uh, landscape. Well, guys, first of all, thanks for the time today. But uh, it, it is, it's, it's unfortunate in one sense that we're kind of one of the world's best kept secrets, but very, very proud of uh, both our heritage and, and where we are today. Uh, we started off as a small broker in Chicago. My grandfather started the business. Came public in 86. Uh, finished that year, I'm sorry, came public in 84. Finished that year at about a $79 million market cap, and it's been a really wonderful journey. Uh, now we're one of the largest insurance brokerage and risk management claims-paying organizations in the world. Uh, operations in over 100 countries, and as you say, about a $40 billion market cap. Well, and the stock chart, Pat, is just unreal in how impressive Where it is. Where have we been, Matt? How I always, I um, you know, I'll gauge companies by pulling up the comp screen on the Bloomberg, which takes a five-year uh, snapshot of your company versus competitors versus the index, and you're just stomping all over everything. Paul, pull up the comp. On I will. I will. AJG. I'm sending an. I'm sending an, an, a message to my insurance analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence saying, "How come I don't know anything about this?" Yeah, Gallagher. So, okay. so what is driving uh, your share price up into the right? Well, look, I, I think that you know it's a cliche to talk about culture, but that is what I'm going to do. Uh, we've been very lucky that a large part of our organizational growth over the last 40 years has been through acquisition. We look for people to do a really good job of taking care of clients, and we bring them in and build and hopefully build all kinds of capabilities around them that allow them to continue to expand their business. I don't want to make this sound like a roll-up. It's a real corporation, but made up of a lot of entrepreneurs. I'm really, really proud. If you take a look at that chart, I forget what you said in terms of how far it goes back, but you look at our 10-year TSR, it's about 600%. You look at our at our five year TSR; it's over two hundred and twenty percent. So I don't like TSR as a measure of success on a short term, three year, one year. I, I have argument with Street on that, but I think if you look five, ten, fifteen, twenty five years, TSR is a really good indicator of whether or not you're delivering for the shareholders. And you can see the chart. Yeah, we've basically done that. We've basically done that through the the whole way. You can click on, if you pull the yeah. comp screen, you can click on a 10-year yeah. as well. Yeah. And it's, I mean, yeah. to me, it's it's just the outperformance that's so impressive because the whole industry has done pretty well um, over yeah. the last 10 years, doubled and tripled, but you've quadrupled, quintupled, sep, 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 I don't know how a to lot. say it. Yeah, <laughs> you're up more than six, six, <laughs> six times. Um, so... That, that's fascinating. Let me ask you this then, Pat. What is, you've been on the board of directors since 1986. That was back when Paul was still doing keg stands at, uh, at Duke. Yeah. But, um, I'm, surprised he was, I'm surprised he was born. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, 
what does the rising rate environment look like to you and, and how does it affect your business? After 10 years of basically zero, um, what's it mean to you, this, this new uh, way of life for most of us, but you've been through it and back? Let me, let me talk about that because I think that's a really good point for your listeners. As everybody frets about inflation and you take a look at what's going on in the marketplace, and of course the stocks are down and last year was a terrible year, one of the reasons we've outperformed and the industry's outperformed is that inflation really is a positive for Gallagher. Now that doesn't mean that if, it, if we have a recession that's a positive, and I could talk about that in the middle minute because our commercial middle market clients are not in recession. We can touch on that. But how can inflation be positive? Remember, we get paid not on the market value of your home, but the replacement cost of your home or your building. And as inflation, as inflation causes wages and cost of construction to go up, insurance companies rightfully demand more premium for the increased exposure. We win in that environment. Secondly, we collect your money. And we are allowed, by agreement with you and our insurance carriers, to hold that money, in, in most instances, for 60 days. So for 10 years, we've had to do the growth that we've done with no fiduciary income on the, on, on the investable asset, which is basically our, our, the premium we've collected from our clients. That's a substantial lift in a rate environment like we have today. So if you go back and you look at this, you've got it. You've had this growth in a zero rate environment, a zero inflation environment. Who's the one winner in the market when inflation comes along? It's not the insurance companies. And make no mistake, we're not an insurance company. We are a broker. So we help our clients manage their risk, and we use the, the carriers as our partners to do that. They take the risk. So if inflation crimps their loss reserves, that's their problem, not mine. But as premiums go up, I benefit from an increased commission. Hey, Pat, one of the reasons we like to get uh, C-suite uh, executives on the show is just to really talk to them about how their business has evolved. And, I, you know, particularly over the last three years with, with the pandemic, and I know you're based in the Chicago area, right in the, the, the heart of uh, the United States. And, you know, as a, as a founder of this company, how has your company, how have your employees changed? How has your kind of workforce, your office life, how's that all changed? Well, first and foremost, I think, you know, look when you look at our company, I know, again, a cliche that our assets come up and down the uh, elevator every day, but it's very, very true. And I'm really, really pleased. We just completed our, our global 43,000 employee uh, survey, and the culture is incredibly strong which I'm pleased with, especially with so much, so many people working from home. So we've gone to a kind of a hybrid model. There's a lot of people in our offices three, four days a week, and there are people working from home, and there are some that will work from home continually. So that, that certainly has changed, and we've benefited from the ability to, to, utilize, you know, to utilize IT, obviously. Uh, but the business itself has changed in the fact that all the way down to your smaller accounts, people are demanding expertise. And that's why you see so much growth here. It's no longer just your local agent is your buddy. I play golf with them. Thanks very much. Take care of my construction company. That's really changing fast as millennials take over. I don't really care that you and my dad play golf every weekend. The fact is I need somebody to help me handle risk management. And I need to know that there's breadth of understanding of what I do. And that's strength and capabilities by industry. So I refer to them as verticals or niches. 
has really changed. Then, of course, you have digitalization. Yeah. Everybody wants two things. They want data and analytics. They want to know, what do people like me buy? What kind of claims have you really seen? And again, there's 39,000 agents and brokers in America. The 100th largest last year did $30 million in revenue. We posted eight-plus billion. So you are getting to this point where there's more and more every day a David and Goliath kind of thing. Yep. And so that's it's a it's a big part of what's so so much change going on that emphasizing culture continues to be the most critical thing our management team does every day. Pat, just about uh, thirty seconds left. Um, what do you think about the possibility of a recession? What's your view on the economy going forward? 30 seconds, very interesting. Read all the same stuff you've read. See the Bloomberg reports as well. Understand high tech, laying off people. Our middle market clients, and we measure this every single day by endorsements and by, and by audits, which means that you pay, more if you're pre, you pay more premium if your sales are up, are stronger this year than last year. What's the takeaway on that? Our middle market, American and global companies, are doing extremely well, which is why you see the pressure on job growth fascinating pat great stuff uh really appreciate it uh this company located in uh rolling meadows uh i'm gonna gonna guess right outside chicago right outside chicago right near evanston you know pretty close to the lake uh all there just north of chicago all those great great towns uh commuter towns north of chicago so that's kind of where they are rolling meadows uh michigan great stuff pat gallagher illinois uh, yes, Meadows, Illinois. Illinois. Thank you very much. Uh, he started Not at Michigan. the company. He started the <laughs> company. so much better than Michigan. He started a com- the company in 1972 as an intern. Great stuff. Pat Gallagher, CEO of Gallagher Insurance. Arthur Gallagher and company and the New York Stock Exchange symbol AJG, $40 billion market cap uh, insurance brokerage firm. We love getting diverse CEO folks and C-suite folks on from around the country, different businesses, getting a sense of kind of how business is out there in the real world. I just feel like in a world of, you know, tech, there are two mega conferences you have to go to. One is Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, that's in January. And the other one is the Mobile World Conference in Barcelona. And good job, the, by the way, saying that. Thank you. Um, I got a five on my AP Spanish. Uh, can't speak a lick. Um, Dan O'Brien, president of the Americas and general manager of HTC. He joins us. He is in Barcelona. Dan, what's the story here? Like, I did not go to CES this year, so I feel like I've, I'm a step behind or two on the whole metaverse thing, virtual reality, augmented reality, all AI. that kind of stuff. AI, all that kind of stuff. What is the buzz uh, at the Mobile World Conference this year? Well, I think uh, thanks for having me, and and apologies for any noise. Uh, we are actually here on the show floor, but um, there's a lot going on here at Mobile Congress. Uh, a lot has to do with 5G, right? And how is that going to create the connectivity for the metaverse, right? And you know, how are carriers and companies like infrastructure partners like Ericsson and carriers like Verizon Wireless and AT&T Wireless and T-Mobile and the likes, and how are they going to be the infrastructure providers for the metaverse, right? And then how do companies like HTC deliver products and services and solutions for B2B and professional users and for consumers that will actually enjoy and and experience those so, types of immersive experiences? All right, Dan, yeah. I, I get that, and I know everybody there is drinking the Kool-Aid, 
But to be honest with you, if I'm a shareholder, a large shareholder of Facebook slash Meta, I can't say in one sentence, I can't tell you, and I, I own a gajillion dollars worth of this stock, I can't tell you in one sentence what the metaverse is. What is the metaverse to you, and where do you think the applications are to you? Sure. Well, the metaverse is really just an extension of the internet and what you use today. Um, what you're going to do in the metaverse is be able to continue to interact with your computers, your Android phones, your iPhones, your iPads. Um, you're just now also going to be able to interact with this digital content as a first person, whether it's with mixed reality glasses or virtual reality glasses or augmented reality glasses or, or glasses that do all of those functions. And you're going to be able to actually interact inside of these digital spaces. Um, our version of the metaverse is the Viverse. And, um, you know, here we think consumers are going to use it for productivity and uh, human performance improvement and, and things like training and simulation and education. Hmm. Um, but it's also going to be used for a lot of entertainment and enjoyment as well. Uh, what, what are all of these acronyms? Uh, I know VR is virtual reality. Um, I don't know what XR is or MR is. What are all these different kinds of realities? Sure. So XR is kind of the umbrella. It's extended reality. It's the thing that extends you from your real space to a fully virtual space. Uh, mixed reality is kind of you're interacting with your real world and everything in, in your space and you can see everything in your space. There's also a digital overlay of content that you're also interacting with in your real space. So you could be playing a game, you know, in your living room where a portal opens up on the wall and the aliens come out and you're playing a game, shooting at those things. You could also be, you know, having an educational experience and learning about world history or ancient Egypt, right? And in your living room and actually doing it while you actually see everything in your living room and including the other people in that living room. So it's really kind of a, a, a mixture of the different levels of immersion that you can have. Virtual reality means you are 100% occluded from the real world and you are completely in a virtual world. So Dan, is is the virtual world, is it a, I mean, I have to have uh, the headset, right? Is that just the way it is? And it's just a question of who has the better headset, the better mousetrap? Well, I think we're, we're all really driving at um, the industry to solve a lot of these different problems as quickly as possible. Um, we all started with virtual reality headsets because the easiest thing to do was put somebody inside of a completely virtual environment and control that and create the experience for the user. Augmented reality and mixed reality are, are more difficult, and you actually have to have a network infrastructure to deliver content to those type of wearables or headsets. The you know, the level of, yes, we're all, you know, in the future, you're actually probably not going to have a smartphone anymore, and you will be using a wearable, where you'll be able to actually have an augmented reality experience and just seeing overlays of digital content inside of the real world. And then you'll also be able to have, you know, different levels of immersion with those types of headsets. We recently announced the XR Elite headset, which actually does virtual reality experiences and mixed reality experiences. So we're already moving there. I think the industry and all the different OEMs and the different companies are trying to solve the different types of experiences we can deliver. Um, I'm wondering about uh, HTC and what you can do in this country. Um, I know it's, a, I think it's a Taiwanese company, right? But um, a lot yes. of Americans are going to think it's Chinese straight away. And you've got this, you know, China backlash going on. What's uh, what's your take on that? You know, 
growing up here, having gone to Marymount, uh, working your way up through KPMG and AT&T. Now you're at H, uh, HTC. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Taiwan is a is a compliant country that actually makes compliant products that are very safe for being used inside of. No, dude, I get that. I'm just like saying like, uh, there, yeah. there's a slant, right? There's a there's a bias yeah, probably sure. in America. And right away, people hear HTC and think, you know, because maybe they're not as educated uh, as you. OK, basically a Chinese company. Um, how do you dissuade them of that in marketing? How do you get around that? Sure. Well, for starters, we don't uh, take any user behavior or user data or collect any of that data. We're actually a very privacy first company. Um, so regardless of where people think they actually the product was made or uh, whether it was made with good intentions, um, we talk a lot about our brand, which is about innovation, creativity and uh, humanity. And so all of our products are actually designed to actually improve humanity and give people solutions that will actually make their lives better. Um, and our products don't data mine any of our users or their user behavior. We want to protect all of that data as the best we can uh, for all of our users. So those are the things that we talk about heavily in our marketing um, and about our brand. And we try to really gain the trust of, of uh, our users. And we have a long history of making things like smartphones and other products that users, you know, at one point HTC sold 48 million smartphones a year. And a lot of people were using our products and a lot of people have a lot of uh, positive sentiment towards our brand. Hey Dan, just about 30 seconds. Uh, is Meta or Samsung, are they customers of HTC or competitors? Well, in some senses competitors, um, but um, in a lot of ways, we are approaching the market very differently. You know, Meta is you know subsidizing their hardware, and you know, you know the user is kind of the product, right? When it comes to a Facebook product or a Meta product, um, when it comes to our product, um, the HTC product or the Vive product that we sell you, that's the product, and you get to use it for the benefit of you, whether it's for entertainment or for productivity or learning or education. But um, in terms of Samsung. You know, they exited the immersive portfolio and the immersive yep. products. Um, and so we'll see what they come to market with probably in the next year or so. Okay, Dan, great stuff. Uh, thanks for phoning in from uh, Barcelona. Great stuff. He's at the Mobile World Conference there. Again, one of the big, big mobile conferences. Maybe uh, the, biggest. the biggest. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, Dan O'Brien, president of America's and general manager at HTC, talking about uh, the metaverse and all things technology. Some good stuff there. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. If you're into the investment banking biz like I am, you really pay attention to what the big, big players, the Morgan Stanleys, uh, the Goldman Sachs at JP Morgan's are saying, and we got a big, big How do you do that? Today. How do you do, do, is there an there's, analyst that you reach out to? Is oh, there one person that you want to hear from? Is Allison Williams. She's our senior banks analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Literally 
one of the first analysts we hired. We begged her to join us back in the day when we were forming Bloomberg Intelligence. She's one of the best on the streets. Allison, you're downtown Manhattan. I know it's hard for you to go below 14th Street, but you're down in the financial district. You're at Goldman Sachs. Are you learning anything today? Are they telling you and, and the street anything that maybe is surprising? Not a lot, and I would say not surprising. Um, although I, I'm surprised the stock is down. I don't know. I, I, I think that we weren't we weren't expecting any new targets from the bank. They already sort of you know talked about their strategy shift late last year. Kind of gave new numbers, and so what we were hoping for today, and, and I think investors were expecting, is you know, details on the path to better returns. Um, and so they they mapped out some things. I would say if there was something that was uh, maybe disappointing is on the cost side of things, they've missed their 60% cost ratio target in recent years. And even some of the cost cuts that they've talked about are, you know, are sort of not going to get them there this year. Um, but I, I feel like there is potential for downside coming into today just because, um, you know, there there is a little bit of work to do to get to the returns, and mm. they kept that return target. And they do have, you know, most banks, when they put out these return targets, a lot of it is dependent on the cost side of things. Um, I think that structural changes to their business are going to help get them there. So I think that's, that's a positive and, and something tangible. They're going to be... Well working down their, their their balance sheet and asset management and then working to get, you know, profitable on the platform business. It just seems like I know Goldman Sachs is still, you know, top of class in a number of different um, swaths of the industry, right? Of course, it's still Goldman Sachs, but they've had this about face with Marcus and the consumer business. They've had this reorganization that's been a little bit messy. They've led the street in terms of uh, having to lay off staff. Um, and now they're holding an investor day, the second one, and they used to be like above investor days, too good for investor days. So is it like a red flag that they're having to try and get investors together and convince them um, that it's still a good story? Well, I think, you know, to me, the consumer business was not successful, but it's a small part of it. I mean, the overall bread and butter of Goldman is phenomenal and doing great. And I think that, um, you know, the market share gains in that business, which drives the majority of their profits, um, the M&A business, which is one of the most um, you know, start after businesses on Wall Street, you know, they they pointed out how they're number one for 20 years. But I would also point to, you know, the fact that they have a big margin to the number two player. So so let's um, keep that perspective. But I think the investor days, you know, they've, they've sort of come with the current management. It's come with wanting to provide transparency. And it's come with some of the newer efforts. You know, you have to be good at what you're good at, but always keep, you know, trying new things. You know, the consumer business has not worked out. There's been so much media and headlines about that. But the transaction banking business has really done well. And, um, you know, I think that's a business that we're going to hope to continue to see good things from. And the alternatives business, you know, they've raised $180 billion over the past few years. That's, you know, in the range of people like, you know, just below Brookfield, in the, you know, KKR, uh Blackstone and, and the leaders, but within that range of like Aries and Carlisle. And I think that 
that's really a story for investors that, you know, as they continue to move some of these investments off their balance sheet into the hands of customers, they're going to release capital, improve the returns on the business, improve the profile of the business. They've never gotten credit for the returns there. And so I think that is really a positive story that we're going to see over the next couple of years. So, Allison, I know from from talking to you and, and from reading your research that Goldman Sachs has typically had, you know, some of the highest returns in the industry year in and year out. I mean, I've competed against them for decades. and I know how good they are to the extent they're to the extent their returns have been lagging recently. Is it just their investments in a consumer bank or if other parts of their business uh, kind of lagged maybe a little bit? So I think it is the consumer part, but then, you know, I'll take you back to sort of the business I was just talking about, which is their um, investment business. Um, So as you said, you've known them for a long time. The private equity um, business and their investments has been a significant business for them. And in the post-focal world, they've been trying to work that down. And while that business contributes to some of their returns, investors just really never um, give them the credit for it because it can be very volatile and there, and and so there's there's just generally less of a multiple applied to that business, and so I think that is a part of the strategy to improve returns, but also improve the quality of that returns through, you know, moving some of those gains to recurring management type fees, which investors do value uh, with a higher multiple, um, reducing the capital that's going to reduce some of their capital requirements. Uh, the $30 billion share repurchase, that's almost 25% of their market value that they talked about today. That's a huge positive. Um, so I think there are some good things. Um, as I said, I think, you know, the, the negative side is maybe just that the costs are going to mm. continue to be a headwind. They're investing still in the platform business, so it'll take a while. Um, so I, I think today's just a lot of talk about execution. It's hard for the stock to return positively, but I think they're setting good targets that they can meet. And so, you know, we're going to have to see them them do that over the next couple of years. Well, it is uh, interesting to see the stock down almost 2% when other financials are gaining today. Um, I don't want to leave uh, you without getting a chance to talk about Credit Suisse, Allison, because I know <laughs> uh, you never tire of the Greensill saga. And apparently, uh, regulators are now saying Credit Suisse needs to hold board meetings occasionally to talk about their um, biggest counterparties, and they have to issue like a responsibility report for their top 600 employees. Seems like so much work. It does. And I think this just continues to focus on the process for Credit Suisse. Um, I think, you know, that there were some incremental posit- positives in terms of their you know, remaining risk in the U.S., um, you know, Elliot Stein, who's who's our legal expert, and I depend on him for those views. Um, but it just, I think, you know, from the uh, local regulator perspective, um, continues to show that they have work to do. They're going to continue to be under scrutiny. We had uh, news earlier this week. Um, oh, well, we had news last week, uh, you know, related to some, some lawsuits yeah. about what they had said about flows. Um, so I think sort of the, the legal challenges do continue right. for them, and uh, it's just going to be a long process. All right, Allison, great stuff, and I recommend after your analyst meeting today, you hop on the ferry, take it over to Hoboken, and get the train home. That's a great way to commute. That's how I used to do it back in the day from downtown. Allison Williams, Senior Global Banks and Asset Manager Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's at Goldman Sachs headquarters today in Lower Manhattan for their uh, Investor Day, uh, giving us the latest on all things Goldman. <laughs> 
talk technology. I'm going to talk Apple. There's any way we can go here. I mean, you got a couple of choices. You can go Anurag Rana or you can go Mandeep Singh. To me, they're interchangeable. They can, you can ask about hardware. Don't tell software. them that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Both I mean, are indispensable. Indispensable. That, yes. That's a better word. Uh, but Anurag Rana, he's actually in uh, 731 Lexington Avenue, our Bloomberg Global HQ. So we got him here in our... And there was a big Apple story today as well. There was a big Apple story here. I guess we reached out to one of their suppliers um, in China, and this supplier tells us that they and uh, their competitors, I guess, are looking for ways to move out Out of China China. as quickly as possible. I can't imagine that goes down too well with the government there. But I can't imagine. Well, anyway, we got Anurag Rana here. He's a tech analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Anurag, just summarize for us. Take us back a little bit and just summarize for us. Apple's exposure to China, both as a supplier of, mm-hmm. of stuff that Apple needs to build all the cool products, as well as an end user customer base. Talk to us about China and how that may be evolving for Apple. So if you look at the smartphone supply chain that has taken, I would say, decades to build, uh, or any supply chain for consumer electronics, Apple pretty much depends on China for all hits, all almost all its spots, whether it's Oof. you know more than 98% of the iPhones are assembled there, most of the lower end Macs are there. The, the you know you you just name it. A- apart from the really high end Macs, everything else is assembled in China. So, given what the political tensions are, it is very logical. And it's not just uh, Apple. It's the automotive industry. All industries are thinking: How do I manage to take some of that supply chain risk outside? And this is going to be a big theme for the next decade. I'm not uh, surprised about the new story. I think more of that will come. Um, from exposure on the uh, on the revenue side, uh, the greater China region accounts for about 20% of Apple's revenue. So for in both cases, mm. Apple is overly exposed to China, whereas a company like Microsoft as Google is not. What do they say about that? I mean, if I, you could make an argument, I can't own Apple. I think that China risk is too big. I can't own the stock, but nobody says that, do they? But, but nobody says that. But but you're right. But uh, but Apple's ten percent of Nasdaq. Apple's what four or five percent of the S and P. So you're absolutely right. If something happens tomorrow, Apple cannot you know go out and and procure those parts. Imagine what would happen to their revenue base because remember you know eighty percent of their revenue is products and new mm-hmm. you know they have to sell new products every year, so it is a big risk. But having said that, they performed very well from a supply chain point of view, even during the big uh, you know the the uh, I would say the embargo or the big uh, fights we had a few years yep. ago. Um, they have been fine, uh, but but you're right. It is a big risk. It is a big risk for everybody. I'm surprised eighty percent of their revenue is products. I would have thought they'd been boosting the services side of that. They are boosting, and services is growing in double digits. But having said that, I mean, you know, iPhone is 52% of their revenue. Yeah. So uh, we have a story on the terminal that a uh, maker of AirPods called Gore-Tec, one of their suppliers, which is a native China company, is looking to move to Vietnam. Well, they're investing $280 million to put a plant in Vietnam. They're looking uh, into an expansion in India. And a lot of these other companies are doing the same. And it's not just Apple suppliers, right? It's also Sony suppliers, makers of the PlayStation. Um, and all of these consumer gadgets, are they 
Are you seeing that across um, the industry just to spread out to Vietnam, to India, to other countries around um, China? Yeah, and as I said, it's not just consumer electronics. I hear this from my friends who make auto parts. The, the real you know, mandate over time, now the, the question here is how long it's going to take, and that's a very, very big if. But over time, I do expect the global supply chain, which is let's say 100% dependent on China, would only be 50% China and 50% elsewhere. That's what I'm thinking. I don't think, I mean, if you're China, your incentive is to remain. I would think your economic incentive would be, I, I want to be the supplier to the world. No, they are, but 50% is big enough too. It's yeah. not as if like, you know, you can't, what are you going to do, sell only half the cell phones? Well, and but, for now also, right? I mean, they surely they look at um, the evolution of other countries that have gone through the same thing and they know that they can't forever be the supplier to the world. They can't forever have these low-wage factories. Um, the economy has to grow and change over time. And again, you know, they, it's possible that the number of units uh, you know, produced in China will remain the same, but the next, the growth factor, whatever the next 10 years of growth is, that's done from outside somewhere else. Look what happened back in November. The Chinese factory that was making iPhone Pro model, the expensive one, uh, got locked down with COVID and uh, they, you know, Apple missed a, a fair amount of shipments and that. So Apple basically said, I'm gonna you know, assemble a second part of it somewhere else. Now, again, as I said, this is going to take years. This is not something you can entangle uh, so quickly. All right, so that brings me to India. If I'm an India technology person, I'm going over to Cupertino and saying, hey, I'll manufacture your stuff in India. I've got as good or better cost structure. I've got as good or better workforce, and I don't have the China risk. Talk to us about India from a technology perspective. No, they are doing it, but historically, India has been very, very, uh, you know, I could say focused on software development and less so on hardware, but that's already happening. The, you know, what you just said is in process. But having said that, even after a lot of these news reports, we just looked at some data, uh, you know, we got from IDC, even now, 90%, 98% of the phones are still made in yep. China from, you know, close to 99 point some percent. Uh, so, that, so the India, you know, is less than, a, you know, maybe less than 1% to 2% at this point. Mm. What is, you cover a range of, I guess, B2B companies, right, um, on the tech side. What is your favorite one? What, what do you get most excited? I look across your research from work to uh, IBM, to Apple, to Salesforce, Microsoft. What makes, what makes your job exciting for you? Yeah. I think all these companies are something special about them. Each one of them do something very unique, but the one that reported last night I'm a big fan of is Workday. They are one of the most ethically sound companies. They really develop a very good software product. They take care of their employees. I mean, it's a very high quality company and they grew, uh, you know, numbers, uh, pretty bookings uh, pretty uh, uh, impressively last night, but um, Salesforce reports tomorrow, you know, they're going through some uh, growing pains. I think their numbers are not going to be as good but you know we have activists invested there and the big question is going to be when does Benihoff say you know what I've had enough and I'm going to walk away and when that happens you will see a Microsoft like uh, story but, uh, you know emerge over there but well. Workday um, so they they make products we use Workday for yeah, example uh, for our benefits management yeah, they, um, here at Bloomberg for Bloomberg employees sorry Workday is the number one cloud HR uh, company in the world HR company yeah, yeah. so 55% of fortune 500 companies use uh, Workday software but does does we use it yeah if okay. you go to manage your benefits change yep. your life insurance coverage yep. or anything like that you do oh, with Workday great. software okay. Okay. which is a pretty cool suite of software products from a consumer from a user standpoint um, What's the end story for them? Does 
a Salesforce buy them? Does a Microsoft buy them? Uh, it would be are they very, too big? It will be very. It's forty-seven, eight, uh, close to fifty billion right now. It'll be very difficult for anybody to buy them. But I'll tell you, a, like a very interesting, uh, you know, movie story behind it. This company is from you know, from the founders of PeopleSoft, which went through a very ugly battle with Oracle many many years ago, and Oracle basically acquired PeopleSoft. And this founder, who's probably at that time was in his 70s, walked up and said, you know what, I'm gonna create a company, uh, a cloud-based HR software company, and it's baking, taking share from PeopleSoft since then. Mm. So it is, I mean, they can make a movie out of this. These guys have done <laughs> such an amazing job. What's the, uh, the Wall Street call on Microsoft these days? I'm just kind of, you know, looking at it here. Um, I'm a big fan of the CEO there, but the stock's, uh, you know, up 4% this year to date, uh, down about 15% on a trailing 12-month basis. What's the Microsoft call? The Microsoft call is the cloud is going to keep on slowing down throughout this year. And uh, hopefully, uh, in my personal view, as soon as the Fed signals that they're ready to stop, I think the business confidence improve. People start spending money back again on technology. And when that happens, and Microsoft comes back and comes back very strong. What is the tech? I mean, does tech spending for 2022, 2023... It doesn't decline, right? It just doesn't no, grow no. as fast? It's, it's a growth. So last five years, it has grown. Uh, top 20 software companies have grown at an average of 20% per year. Wow. But this year, they're going to grow 12, 13%. Okay. So shabby compared to last few years, but it's still pretty impressive. So, I mean, software is still the play, right? I yeah. mean, it's, yeah. it's the cloud. I'm still playing the cloud, right? They're still playing the cloud, but this year is a bad year for cloud. So everybody is dumping Amazon. Everybody's take, you know, getting out of Microsoft because of that. But, you know, in reality, the long-term prospects are so good. In fact, this is the biggest case for cloud is what's happening right now. You have a company, let's say a corporation that has had a fixed cost structure of IT and suddenly decides that, okay, 10% of my assets go to the cloud and now I'm charging on a per use basis, suddenly your cost structure becomes variable. In the next cycle, you're going to go out and outsource more of that stuff because it's so beneficial for you. Mm -hmm. All right, good stuff. Anurag Rana, whenever we see him and they're in the, the AI, And they're in the AI. They're in the know? AI stuff? Yeah. Oh, that's good. With that's open good. AI, oh, chat that's, GPT. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Oh, boy. So buy that. Buy that. Anurag Rana, tech analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Whenever we see him roaming the halls here in New York, we literally just grab him, bring him into the studio, and get the latest dump on what's going on uh, in the world of technology. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.